Uh, Knowing why you do something makes all the difference to your attitude. For example, someone who gets impatient waiting 30 seconds for traffic lights will queue for an hour for their favourite restaurant. They'll queue overnight to buy the latest iPhone. Why you do something makes all the difference to your attitude. A child at the beach paddles in the rock pool. That's alright, but he grumbles because he really wants to be in the surf. Much more exciting, but his mum knows how rough and dangerous it is. If he could understand the danger, he'd be more content in the safety of the pool. Knowing why you do something changes your attitude. Or a teenage girl impatiently wants mum to make her new dress today, but instead they spend the whole day measuring, setting out, arranging, cutting. If she could just understand that good preparation ends up with a well-made dress, she'd be more patient, she'd get more enjoyment from the process. Knowing the reason why you do something makes all the difference to your attitude. And it's the same here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our attention most likely goes straight to verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet. And for many of us we hear those words and we react negatively. It goes against what we think about men and women, about the individual rights of women. Men and women are equal. It's not fair we think to restrict one from doing something that the other does. But I want to suggest that God gives us good reasons for why men and women are to behave in a a certain way. And the reasons make all the difference to our attitude. So, let's have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look, for example, at verse 1. Paul urges Timothy to make sure that people pray. And it begins with a therefore. Uh, Some versions, like the NIV that we just read, have then. Uh, So what we need to do when a therefore is there, we need to say, what's it there for? Let's look back to chapter 1 and find out why Timothy instructs us to pray, uh, why Paul instructs us to uh, pray. Chapter 1 was all about what Timothy was to do. He was to stay in Ephesus and stop false teaching, verse 3. Verse 8, he was to teach the truth about the law. Verse 11, it was to be sound doctrine. And then in verse 18... Paul gives Timothy these instructions so he'll fight the good fight, hold on to faith and so people won't shipwreck their faith. Then chapter 2 begins. Therefore I urge you firstly to pray. Can you see the link? Uh, Because some people have shipwrecked their faith, everybody should pray. It's the most important thing the church can do. It's not the only thing but it's of first importance. Therefore, pray. All sorts of good things we can do, but the most useful is prayer. Because, of course, it's God who ultimately enables people to stand firm, who stops them falling away. So we're to pray that God will do that. God holds on to people. What are we to pray? Well, we're to pray all sorts of prayers for all people including verse 2, we're to pray for those who govern us, kings and those in authority. And can you see the reason why we're to pray for them? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You see, a stable society 
that's ruled well is actually a blessing. It means that Christians are free to live godly, quiet, peaceful lives. That's why we should pray. Verse 3 and 4, we get another reason why we should pray for all people. Uh, Verse 3, a peaceful, quiet life is good, pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We're to pray for all sorts of people because God wants all people to be saved. His vision for salvation is broad. So the vision of our prayers should be broad as well. We should pray for all nations. We should pray for all classes of people, all languages, for those near, for those far. We should pray for those who are open to the gospel or those who seem closed. We should pray for rich and poor. We should pray for male and female. Because God wants all to be saved. And in verses 5 and 6 we, can, uh, we see the reason why God wants all men to be saved. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. You see the truth is there are not lots of gods. <clears throat> There's not one for each nation. There's not a God for Australia and a God for Pakistan and a God for China and a God for India and a God for Saudi Arabia. There's one God. Most people think that it's, there's lots of gods. Most people think each to his own. It's wrong to evangelise. They've already got their own religion. That's just cultural imperialism, imposing your beliefs on someone else. But that's wrong. The truth is there's one God. There's one God over one human race. And he wants to save all of those people. He wants to save people from every race. There's no difference. He wants to save black and white. He wants to save male and female. He wants to save rich and poor. And so he sends one mediator between himself and that one humanity. And Jesus gives himself as one ransom, sufficient for one humanity. There's only one way to God. There are not lots of ways. That's why Paul went to the Gentiles, because they're part of that one humanity, verse 7, so that all people might hear the message and the Gentiles too would come underneath the lordship of the one God through the one mediator. That's why we pray. And then we come to verse 8 to 15 about what people should do when they gather for church. And once again there's a connection between the what and the why, the what we do and the why we do it. Now, unfortunately, the NIV doesn't include it, but it's there. There's a therefore at the beginning of verse 8. Perhaps you have a different version that begins verse 8 with a therefore. Therefore, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, normally if there's a slight difference in translations, I try not to make a big deal out of it, but can I say the therefore is really important here. Uh, The logic helps us understand why we are to behave a certain way, so let's think about it. Because God wants everyone to be saved... Men in every place, wherever church meet, should lift up holy hands in prayer. 
without anger or disputing. Do you see? God wants people everywhere to be saved, therefore people everywhere in church should be praying. Each church, wherever it is, should be a life-saving outpost where men and women too are praying for the salvation of those around them. But it goes deeper. Because there's one God who wants one new humanity, men should pray in a way that reflects that. Men should pray with clean, peaceful hands, a a lifestyle and behaviour that that is unpolluted by disagreements and quarrels, Uh, a lifestyle that's unpolluted with power struggles and selfish, me-first attitudes. Our attitude of prayer should reflect the oneness and the unity of the God who wants one new humanity. There should be unity in the church because there's unity in God's vision for his kingdom, united under Jesus. The behaviour and attitude of men when they pray should match God's character and God's purposes. The reason we do things affects our attitude. Likewise, verse 9, the women are to have an attitude that matches up to God's character. Men, they're not to argue or quarrel. Women aren't to be showy or proud, specifically in the way they dress, in a way that will encourage pride or competition or envy, in a way that tends towards a disunity and a division rather than a unity and a peace. Humility, on the other hand, encourages unity and peace, which is in keeping with God's purposes of one humanity. Instead of showiness and one-upmanship, women should be known for good deeds, done with an attitude of cheerfulness and humility, rather than the latest fashion. Good deeds that serve others matches up to Jesus, to the servant king who gave himself as a ransom for all. We we focus on the externals, on the clothing, but, but I'm suggesting Paul's emphasis is on the attitudes, the attitudes that reflect the attitude of the one God who wants one new humanity. Whether it be men or women, our attitudes of anger and disputing our attitudes of pride or one-upmanship are what is contrary to God's character. When it comes to the church meeting, here's what those same attitudes should look like. Verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, what women should do and verse 12, what they shouldn't do. And the two verses go together and they help us understand each other, I think. So verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. God wants all humanity to come to a knowledge of the truth and and that includes women. So the first thing to say is women are to learn. That's a good thing. Women are to learn. And the way they're to learn is, we're told in verse 11, quietness with all submissiveness. Now quietness doesn't mean silence. Uh, It's the same word, quietness, is the same word as verse 2 where Christians are to live peaceful and quiet lives. 
That doesn't mean they're to be silent. They're not to live a silent life. Uh, It means uh, they're to learn without arguing or antagonism. There's to be a peacefulness and a humility about the way they learn, not a silence. Uh, Unfortunately, the NIV, once again in verse 12, has the word silent, but it's not silence, exactly the same as the quietness word in verse 11 and the quietness word in verse 2. Quiet means peaceful. I think it's probably a contrast with the way the false teachers back in chapter 1 were conducting their Christianity. They loved controversies and disagreements and meaningless talk and Paul's saying, women, you should learn in a way which is not like that. Now that word for submission, um, taxis. there you go, it's a two-part word. Taxis is where we get taxonomy from, sort of ordered, things are ordered in a certain way. Uh, and it's a word about being under order or under orderliness. A lot like Stu's kids talk, it must have been the, the, the Greek lessons you've been taking, Stu. And it's a word that's a very common word for what Christians are called to do, to, to, be, to put ourselves underneath God's order. Uh, earthly fathers uh, discipline us, uh, but we should submit to the fathers of our spirits, Hebrews 12.9. Uh, we're also called to submit to Christ as our head. Uh, we're called to submit to earthly authorities, uh, those and those over us in Christian leadership as well. We're to submit to those over us in Christian leadership. Further, Christian slaves are to submit to their masters. Younger men are to submit to older men. Children are to submit to parents. Uh, finally, 1 Corinthians 15:28 says that all things will be made to submit to Jesus at the end when he returns just as Jesus himself submits to God. So that's a common word. Christians are called to put themselves underneath the order that God's established. Uh, John Woodhouse helpfully writes, God has ordered society a certain way. His plan is that society is redeemed not by individual liberation from restraints and obligations to others, but by each gladly placing him or herself under the ones God has placed over us. Christians are called to recognise, acknowledge and welcome the responsibilities God has given to others for our welfare. Submission is the opposite of autonomy and independence. It's an acceptance of dependence. I think that's helpful. And it's that attitude that women are to have as they learn in the church gathering. They're not to challenge or dispute what's taught. doesn't mean they're to accept it unthinkingly. Uh, they're to be willing to learn. They're to be eager to obey. And the way they learn, says Paul, should match their dress and the way they behave generally. Verse 9 and verse 10. There's to be a humility and a peacefulness, a peaceableness uh, about their attitude. Verse 12 turns it around and considers uh, what it means uh, women are not to do in church. Uh, It says they're not to teach or have authority over a man. Uh, Teaching 
everybody the knowledge of the truth is someone else's responsibility rather than theirs and it means they're to accept God's order in that. Now that doesn't mean women are not to teach at all. Paul encourages women to teach other women. He encourages women to teach children. Timothy himself, uh, we're told in 2 Timothy as a child, received instruction from his mother and his grandmother. It's just teaching men, which is someone else's responsibility. So that's the teaching word. What about having authority over men? Well, it's connected to this idea of God's order in society. He's given certain people responsibility towards others. In this case, it's men or some men who are to lead the church. And so this idea of authority is is the mirror image of uh, submission in verse 11. So for a woman not to be an authority over a man means to welcome, to gladly accept the responsibility that certain men have to teach and to shepherd and to oversee the church. And that is the context for this verse. The the context for this submission, it's not speaking about uh, women submitting to all men. It's not speaking about other contexts outside the church or the marriage relationship. It's specifically, here it's talking about the church and in other places I think uh, uh, it obviously talks about marriage. Women are to submit to their husband or to those God has put in charge of leading the church, not uh, all men. Well, we'll come back in a few moments to think about what all this means for how women can serve, what they are to do, rather than just what they're not to do. Uh, But I want to keep moving through the passage because uh, verse 13 we're given two reasons why women are to be in submission and not in authority. So verse 13, for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Go back to creation, says Paul. God set up an order of responsibilities. Man was given the task of ruling and subduing the earth. The woman was given the task of being his helper. That's God's good design. And when Eve was deceived by the snake, she turned that order upside down. Instead of listening to and being led by Adam, the way God had designed, she listened to the snake and was deceived. When you turn God's order upside down, uh, things are messed up. That's what happens when you're not submitting to God's order. That's Paul's point. Uh, His point is that women are not to teach or be in authority because they're easily deceived. That's not his point. He's not saying that and he's not saying they're not able to teach. He's not saying that either. Uh, He's saying that because God's creation design is for husbands to lead, for wives to be helpers, uh, that's his design in marriage and it's also a design that's reflected in the church. Uh, Claire Smith uh, helpfully writes... Uh, The principles of God's creation have not changed. This pattern of relationships transcends time and culture. What was ideal in the garden still applies. The pattern of male leadership and female submission that God first established is to be the pattern for the Ephesian church. The disruption of that pattern seen in the fall is not to be repeated. I think that's the point of verses 12 uh, and 13, sorry, 13 and 14. 
Uh, That was a disruption, says Paul. Don't go there again. Uh, The woman... uh, the, the women are not to usurp the male leadership God has provided. Well, that's 13 and 14. That move brings us to verse 15, which is a difficult, another really difficult verse. There's lots of opinions about what it means. But I want to suggest the key is remembering the previous verse's connection uh, to Eve. And uh, so verse 15 is connected uh, to, to the previous ones to do with Eve. So let's read the three of them together and see if that helps. Uh, for Eve was, uh, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Now if you're following along in your NIV, you might have noticed I replaced they with she at the start of verse 15. That's actually more accurate. That's what the Greek says. It's what other versions say. But it does sound really clunky, doesn't it? Uh, The way I read it, I said, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. What's going on? Why the change? Is there some mistake? And I think maybe that's why the NIV put they at the start of verse 15 as well. So what's going on? Well, I think what Paul is saying is something happened with Eve and that has has an effect or has a a consequence for all of us as a result. Uh, Childbearing is connected with Eve's being deceived and her sin and God's consequences for her and the fallen world. Uh, So when Eve, Eve was deceived, the consequence was childbearing would be painful Uh, Secondly, her desire would be for a husband and he would rule over her, Genesis 3. And so here's what I think Paul is saying. Even though Eve sinned, even though Eve turned God's order of things upside down, God didn't abandon her. Uh, He was still at work. Uh, He gave her a responsibility that was affected but she was ultimately saved as she lived out her God-given responsibility. She was saved through filling the earth through childbearing and through the damaged relationship she had to endure with Adam. So what's that got to do with the women in Timothy's church? Well, here's where I think it moves from the she to the they. Paul's actually being positive for the women uh, in Uh, the Ephesian church. He's saying God's design is for the man to lead and the woman to help. That's to be reflected in church. Uh, And even though women may have to endure the effects of Eve's sin of the fall, painful childbearing, a a battle between men and women for who's in charge, God is still at work. God is at work working out his salvation purposes for women as they continue in faith and love and holiness, as they're content, as they show that by being content in the roles God's given them. Well, hopefully that helps a little. Uh, These are still difficult verses. So let's turn to the question finally of what is it that women um, can do? What should they be doing in church? Verse 12 has told us what they shouldn't be doing. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's try and get some of these verses to 
to, uh, to help us, to help inform us. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body, it talks about how every person, male and female, is a part of the body uh, and we've all been given gifts, each of us, that help build up the body. Uh, we should use our gifts uh, to build up the body. So what is it that women can do? What should they be doing? Well, they should be doing anything, everything that men do that's not teaching or having authority over men. Everything. Women should be doing all of it except for anything which is teaching or having authority. Uh, Ephesians 5.19 uh, says, Ephesians 5.19 says, we're all, all of us to speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. All of us are to speak to one another. Colossians 3.16 says, all of us are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach, admonish one another with all wisdom. Now that's, we obviously have to say, within the boundaries that Paul's established here in 1 Timothy. We're all to teach and admonish one another according to God's order. At Titus 2, uh, 4 talks about older women training younger women. 1 Corinthians 11, 5 talks about men and women praying and prophesying in church. So there's all sorts of things that women can and should be doing in church. What I want to do in finishing is to identify a number of traps that we can fall into as we take verses or ignore verses in the Bible about how men and women use their gifts in church. So firstly, a few traps for the men. First trap, men can be contentious and argumentative, proud and competitive. Rather than lifting up holy hands in prayer, without anger and disputing. That's a trap. Men, we should be uh, peaceful and united and not argumentative and contentious. Trap number two, uh, men who fail to lead, who fail to step up and lead, either as husbands and fathers in their families or in the church. Uh, Men who wait for someone else to do it, either through spiritual immaturity or laziness or selfishness. Uh, uh, These verses are speaking against that trap. Or else, men who fail to lead, uh, maybe they lead but they lead in a poor way. Uh, They're underprepared or unprepared when they stand up to lead God's people in some way or to teach Uh, They put in the minimum effort. They settle for second best. That's a trap. Men, when you do that, you're not giving women much to learn from or to submit to. Uh, Measure up to God's order. Third trap. Uh, Men who rule but who rule selfishly and oppressively. Who rule out of self-interest rather than as servant leaders like Jesus. Men, if you are an elder or a teacher, make it easy for the women uh, you lead to learn and submit to you. Uh, Serve them, put their needs before yours. Here's a fourth trap for the women. Uh, women uh, Women who push themselves forward from the wrong motives. 
This uh, passage speaks against that. Uh, Who push themselves forward or push others forward to prove a point or to be an authority or do it from pride rather than humility and a contentment, a pride that they think they know better. That's a trap. Uh, Finally, a fifth trap. Women who don't want to speak or teach or train others in appropriate ways. Maybe they've never known anything different or they've never really understood what the Bible says about all God's people using their gifts or maybe they think they have nothing to contribute, they lack the confidence. Well, that's a trap too. If that's you, then let me share 1 Corinthians 14:26 with you which says, What then shall we say, brethren? Uh, When you come together, everyone, male and female, has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Uh, We are strengthened as men and women share, as they share what God's been doing for them as they lead in prayer, as they prophesy, as they point one another to God's truth in the Bible, as they teach and train each other in appropriate ways. That is the whole body working together. We are strengthened when that happens. As uh, Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's all be doing that. Uh, We all do these things, remember, why? Because God wants everyone, all people, to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Praise God for his mercy in Jesus as he works out the gospel in us and in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to reflect you and your purposes as we live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. David's going to come and continue leading us in prayer. Thanks, David.